Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Amateur Hunter Podcast. thing is really catching on. I have actually made it into the double digits on these playlists, so um, we are available now actually across a ton of different platforms. I know a lot of you are listening on Spotify, and I actually create this on Anchor, so that's another place that you can listen to it. Also, I mean, it is, let me just take a look here. It's available on Google Podcasts, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public. And I think I got a notification not too long ago that uh, Apple picked it up as well. So you have a lot of choices now for this wonderful time to spend with me. Um, so I do appreciate those who have been listening and the support that I've been getting and the feedback. So without further ado, um, I think today... The breakdown is actually going to be my first bow kill, and the reason I chose that one is I think it's it's a whole different kind of hunting, doing it with archery. Um, it's a lot more up close and personal. I mean, typically in the Midwest, anyway, um, even with a shotgun, it's still pretty close. I mean, it's nothing compared to, to what you see in, in Western hunting, desert hunting, things like that with rifle shots that, you know, if you wanted them to, could exceed whatever, a mile. But, uh, so it's, it's, it's always going to be a lot more up close on the Midwest, Eastern side of the world where, you know, we don't have a whole lot of open area, just mainly forests and things like that. But even still, um, archery is going to be a lot more up close and personal, and and in my opinion, takes a lot more skill, um, developed skill. I don't think it's a talent. I don't think it's something that you're born with. I think it's something that, with a lot of hard work, you're going to develop it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And and we're like I said, we're going to go into my first bow hunt, which was successful. And it's kind of funny. Um, I guess you could talk about how this whole podcast is devoted to the failures that I've had, and and the first two episodes actually ended in success, but. Um, well, for one, that's not going to last forever. I have failed a lot more times than I've succeeded. But also, um, like I you know, showed before, just because you succeed doesn't mean you didn't fail in a lot of different areas. Sometimes you might bumble your way into a good situation and you've screwed up the last three days, but all of a sudden, you know, this animal walks out in front of you because it, you know, again, has some mental def- deficiencies like my deer did. But... <clears throat> So you always want to you always want to inspect yourself. You always want to look back at what you've done as a hunter and what you can do better. Because I promise you that you can do better. Everybody can. Anyway, I won't delay it anymore. Uh, let's go ahead and get into this week's story. Okay, so before I get started, I guess I forgot to tell you during the intro. Um, this podcast is brought to you by me. It is still me putting this whole production together, and I'm not going to lie. It is getting expensive. Um, I now have my microphone zip-tied to a jack stand, and I can't even tell you how much that costs. 
I mean, I'm doing everything I can to up the production value for you guys here. So, um, you know, we're still waiting on those sponsors. I'm sure they're going to pick up someday. Um, until then, you guys feel free to throw in your donations. Uh, we accept all forms of currency, whether that be uh, loose change, dollar bills, PayPal transfers, um, well wishes, IOUs, doesn't matter. If you feel so inclined as to support this channel, then you just do it however you seem fit. Um, whether that just be a high five when you see me, I don't care. Regardless, support the channel somehow, and definitely will appreciate it. Anyway, alright, enough of that junk, let's get into this. So, here we are. I am already established as a master hunter, um, as I showed in the last episode with the amazing uh, hunt that I put on for that deer that's hanging on my brother's wall. So I've already proven myself as a shotgun hunter. Um, now it's been probably, I don't know, anywhere from seven to nine years since, uh, since that first kill. And uh, it's just all becoming too easy for me. So I, uh, I decide it's time to step up my game. And the, everybody should know that that's a, a, an utter and complete lie. What happened is that uh, I had been hunting, you know, pretty much every year since my first year. I've harvested a few animals. And, you know, and I did. I Obviously, I did get better in, in a lot of areas. But my brother-in-law, Scott, I don't know how many times I've mentioned him in the past. I think probably in the first episode I did. But like I said before, I've grown up with him. He's pretty much a brother before he became my brother-in-law. And he taught me a ton. And I wrote about this um, in an old blog thing I used to do. And uh, and it was the best way that I could describe him. So, you know, my dad, he introduced me to this, this whole thing of the outdoors and hunting. He, you know, got me my guns. He showed me the safety of them, you know, how to be safe with guns. He kind of showed me the basics of hunting and, and what to do and how to do it. You know, took me on rabbit hunts and squirrel hunts, obviously my deer hunt. And I'd gone many years with him after that. I mean, every year after I killed my first deer, it was always the tradition that, you know, it was all of us went together. So that was always kind of the same thing, and not in a negative way. I loved it. But, um, but you know, he, when I referred to him before in my other thing that I wrote, I, I kind of referred to him as like my head coach. Like when I when I played sports, he would be like my head coach. He kind of had the big idea. He kind of provided what I needed to do what I needed to do. But, you know, he was looking at everything. He had two boys to take care of. He also had all this other stuff going on. So he just kind of gave me the broad shotgun blast of what it is to be an outdoorsman and what it is to hunt. Where Scott comes into this whole picture is I would compare him to like my... Um, pitching coach or your quarterback coach or you know all, when you when you play these sports especially when you play them at a high level um, which I never did I just watch enough of it to know um, but when you play it at a higher level you have a specialized coach I mean every position pretty much has their own coach um, because they're breaking down each individual job you're not looking at the big picture anymore you're looking at what is my specific role in football you know where where am I blocking what am I doing and and so you have those specialized people. 
well, that's what Scott is was you know is and was to me. I, I will I will be hundred percent honest with you. Every time I go back to Illinois and I do something with him, he teaches me something new every time. I try to think that I know what I'm doing. I try to go back there and show him all these great things. Like I did this last year, I went back there with my nice new bear bow. I had been shooting that thing out to a hundred yards. Not that I'd ever take an animal that far. I'm not that confident, but I follow the the Cam Haynes. Um, kind of model of you shoot farther than you're comfortable with and then you're comfortable with the closer shots. Regardless, I'm thinking I'm top-notch, all this other crazy things. He went out and bought like a uh, an old Hoyt bow. I think he actually traded something for it. And this thing's old, like not even maybe maybe the 90s, maybe early, early 2000s. I don't know. It's definitely not a new bow, not like what I was rocking. And... He winds up just out shooting me. Just, I mean, we we do these little challenges all the time. Anytime I see him, and and he just he destroys me. And he hasn't shot a compound bow, I don't know, in a very long time, probably since I was in high school, and that's going on 20 years now. And because he's he learned how to make bows and became pretty much an expert in that area, and now that's all he does is hunt with with uh, his own self-made bows. But he bought a compound for other reasons. Blah blah blah. Anyway. Regardless, the guy is good at what he does, and he always can teach me something. So to, to get back on track here, I'm in high school. I want to say I was a, I, I had to have been a junior, maybe a senior. I don't really recall. I know I was driving, and I, was, I went to school early, so I didn't actually get my license until my junior year because I remember we took my truck a couple of times when we went hunting. So we're going to say 2002 to 2004. Um, that would be my, my last three years of high school, somewhere in that area. I don't know where it came from that Scott decided he wanted to start bow hunting, but he did. Um, went out and bought himself a compound bow. It was a, uh, I want to say it was a PSE. It was a PSE. It was a good bow. I mean, I think he bought it used, but it wasn't, like, old. It was a good bow. Also, disclaimer on compound bows, actually any bow in general, uh, don't dry fire them. A friend of my brother's came over, I think, like the week that Scott bought that bow and drew it back and let it go and, um, yeah, about blew the stupid thing up. The good part about it was is that uh, he raked it all the way down his forearm, so he paid the price for it as well. But just a little public service announcement, don't ever dry fire a bow. If you're going to draw a bow back, uh, you either need to have a no-fire release or you need to have an arrow knocked. Um, because the energy of that bow has to go somewhere, and if it's not going into an arrow, it's going into your limbs, and more often than not, it's going to blow that bow up, and you're going to be out quite a bit of money, because warranties don't really cover uh, negligence. Anyway, I digress. So, Scott got it in his head. He wanted to go bow hunting. It was a new challenge for him, and he, I mean, Scott is, I think, 10 years older than me, maybe a little bit more, I think. I think we're about 10 years apart, though. So for as long as I've been hunting, he has 10 years on me. And he's a better hunter than I am, so he's killed more animals, harvested more animals. I, I, I say kill, but I don't want that to, like, offend people because everything's offensive nowadays. But what I'm, I'm truly meaning is harvesting. We just don't go shoot animals and then leave them sitting there. Like, we eat it all, I, and I love it all. So he decides he's going to start hunting, goes out and gets his bow, and he offers, you know, the opportunity for me to join him um, wants to know if I'd be possibly interested in doing that. I'm like, cool, yeah, you know, I'm broke and I don't come from a rich family and I, at this point, probably had 75 different hobbies that I had started and quit, so my parents also were not 
overly excited about uh, just dumping a bunch of money. So I couldn't just go out and get a nice new bow. So I call around, find out my uncle has a bow that he bought, never used, and doesn't mind if I use it. So, And actually, it's the same uncle that I, I started my hunting career with, my Uncle Don. So I go down to his place, grab the bow. Scott and I order some arrows from Bass Pro. We order redhead carbon arrows. They were top-notch at the time. And uh, get those in, get them cut, get everything all set up. By this time, this is the way Scott is, and I think it's rubbed off on me a lot. Scott doesn't really do things off the cuff. If he's going to do something, he's going to figure out how it's done. He's going to research it. He's going to get all the, the things figured out before he even does the actual act. So Scott was pretty knowledgeable about how this whole archery thing worked probably before he even knocked his first arrow. You know, he knew that we need to get the arrows cut down. He knew, you know, fletching. He pretty much knew all of that stuff. So we get everything ready. And and this is where I will tell you where the, the biggest difference, and we'll come back to this, and, and I'll remind you of it, but I want you to kind of pay attention to the evolution of this and compare it to the evolution of my first actual big game hunt ever. But we both get our bows, and we just start practicing. And, and I, I mean, I feel like for a while there, it was almost every day. I mean, we were shooting, I don't, I, I would have to say upwards of 100 arrows a day, easily. There was a new bow shop that opened up maybe half hour from the house. It was it was gorgeous too. Had a nice twenty yard indoor range, plus one of those uh, screen shooters where you basically take your field tips off and you, they have like these rounded field tips that won't penetrate the the screen, and it has all these cameras and junk and it shows you where you hit and all that. And it was really really cool. Um, him and I joined a league, so every I want to say Tuesday night um, we we went out there to shoot and I mean. It, quite a few arrows then plus I do some practicing while we were waiting for our turn I mean we did we dialed it in um he he pushed me and and that's kind of his thing is that if I'm tell him I'm going to do something he wants me to do it he doesn't really like when I back out and I've done it on him before and it doesn't end well he gets you know pretty fired up about it but I was excited about it one thing I really like about um shooting bows is that it, it's really not an expensive hobby it can be don't get me wrong. Any hobby can be expensive, and anything in the hunting world can be really expensive. But the fact is that after you buy a bow, you get your bow set up, and, and that can be a bit of, a, of an investment, but you get your arrows and things like that. I've, I mean, I, I know that I've had to have put arrows through targets several hundred times before I either lose it, break it, determine that you know it's just trash. I've actually never shot an arrow to breaking point. I've never done it. I've either, you know, tried to, to extend my range and wound up losing one. I have Robin Hooded a few arrows over the years. I, I've, you know, just different things, but I've actually never shot one to the point where it is so used and so brittle that it just breaks under the pressure of the string. So once you basically have your, your setup, you can shoot all day and not spend a dime. You get a little foam target sit it in your backyard, and you can shoot that until you can't draw a bow back anymore. And it's not going to cost you anything more than what you already put into it. You're not going to have hearing damage from, you know, a giant boom from a gun. You don't have to go somewhere special. I mean, I'm telling you, and if anybody has any true information on this, please let me know, because right now I'm going under the impression that there isn't. But right now I shoot in my backyard. I live in town, in, in a town called Arvada. 
I have searched, I've done my due diligence, I have searched for any city ordinances or any Colorado statutes that say I'm not allowed to shoot my bow in my backyard, and I have not found a single one yet. So, if somebody does know this and, and I am in the wrong, please let me know because I don't want the cops knocking on my door. But also, um, I'm pretty sure if my neighbors knew, they probably would have called the cops already. So we practice, and we practice a lot. And, and we don't go crazy. Um, like, like I said earlier, the Midwest, you're not getting really far shots. This past year, I took a shot on a doe that was 70 yards and biffed, and we'll tell that story. I mean, that was probably one of the longest shots I've ever taken, and it was a stupid shot to take. It was a desperation. I was in my last day of hunting. I was within 15 minutes of shooting light, and I was about to come back to Colorado without any deer meat. And so I took a last-minute desperation shot. Regardless, I'm not going deep into that because that's going to ruin the episode. Anyway... Short shots, it's not really all that much, you know, distance. 40 yards. If you can shoot 40 yards accurately in Illinois, you can pretty well harvest a deer. I I would say, I I think I started practicing with him in the spring. Whatever year it was, I think it was the spring, and we went all summer long. I mean, we, I, I couldn't even tell you how many arrows I shot. I'm pretty sure I had to make another order of arrows before the the deer season because I'd lost enough that it you know wasn't smart for me to go with what I had um so I just we did so much practicing and we did good practicing it wasn't just a waste of time and and that's one area too I would push very hard on is if you're going to practice make it actually count don't just be out there fiddle farting around and and then you wind up two hours into it and, and you haven't actually done anything to improve yourself I mean, we would take we would take different shots, kneeling, crouched. I believe we climbed up in a tree stand several times and were shooting out of the tree stand. You know, those are the different things you can do to to really, really make it a good practice, something that's legitimate to what you are going to try to accomplish later on. And that's exactly, you know, what you want when you do anything. You know, this is – I talk about hunting, but this is everything, you know, if you're into sports, if you're into video gaming or whatever, you know, racing, all of that, it comes down to practicing and making good practice, not just wasting your time out there. But anyway, so I'm telling you, I, by the time the fall came around, I was confident in my equipment. I knew what that bow did. I knew how it felt when I was holding the bow wrong. I knew how it felt when I when my body was in perfect alignment and, and everything was set correctly, when I you know when my peak was aligned correctly. Like I knew how it looked, I knew how it felt, I knew when I, it was one of those things. And, and anybody who shoots or anything like that, you have those times when you become so proficient with whatever you're doing, you know when you messed up before you even did it, before you even go look at your target. You know I I pulled that one. Or that one's going to be a little bit left. I, I had my wrist cocked a little bit. You know, I, whatever it is, um, that's where I was. And I'm not saying that as a bragging. I'm saying that as that's how much practice we put in. And, and that a lot of that, I, I'd honestly say probably at that point, almost every bit of it comes down to Scott being that specialty coach. He knew the responsibility of a hunter. And he also knew the responsibility of, of archery, that it's a tougher sport, that bad shots – there are, I promise you, right now there are deer walking around with a broken arrow sitting inside of them somewhere because people put bad shots on them and didn't kill that deer. And now they're scarred for life. They might have, you know, all these different problems 
from it, but they're alive. And that's the responsibility as hunters. We, we spoke about that before, and I can't drive that home enough. When you decide to, to take this kind of a thing on, you have to take on the responsibility that you're ending a life. It's not the same as, you know, from the military where it's man versus man. That's a whole different world to be a part of. But it, it's still a very, a very uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for. It's just a huge responsibility. If you're going to end a life, you need to do it correctly. You need to do it quickly. And that's what Scott would drive home. And, and that's how he knew for us to get to that point was practice. We have to practice, and we have to do good practice. And I know I'm talking a lot about this, but I'm trying, I really, this is one of the biggest things that I can tell anybody. If anybody were to, to ever make the mistake of asking me for advice, this is the only advice I can really give is that you need to freaking practice. I don't care what you're doing. If you're going to come out to Colorado with a rifle or you're going to go down to Texas with a bow or go hunt whitetail with a bow or whatever or, you know, muzzle loading. You had better practice. You had better take responsibility for your actions and what your potential actions are going to be and freaking practice. Know your weapon. Know what it's going to do. Know how it feels when you do it right. Know what it, what it feels like when things aren't quite right so that you can possibly stop it. Again, a ton of practice. I mean, I was very proficient with that bow by the time deer season came around. I knew how to shoot that bow. I knew how to harvest an animal. I knew that I, I could do it. So I want to say, is it September 1st in Illinois that archery season starts? It's it's a long season. That's what I really actually like about it is that uh, that the season is so long. And also, uh, just so everybody's aware, I don't have producers or assistants or anything like that. So when I'm trying to find information, I am trying to find it on the fly. Um, so you're just going to have to bear with me. But... Uh, I want to say it's September is when it starts, September 1st, maybe. Oh, no, no I'm wrong, October 1st. Um, but then it goes through January, uh, like middle of January. So you're talking October, November, December, you know, two weeks plus in January. So, th you know, three and a half months. You have to, to shut down bow season for shotgun season. You're not allowed to. I think maybe muzzleloading season too. But still, there's a ton of time to get an animal. You know, it's not one of those three days in and you're done. You've got a lot of time. And you get to see, that's where I learned a lot about uh, the phases of the rut. Seeing, you know, the pre-rut, the rut, post-rut, and, and all of that. Um, you get to see that with archery. You get to see the different behaviors. You get to go from, you know, pre-rut where it almost seems like you could just jump on the back of one of these guys and go for a ride. They're just everywhere. They're, they're going nuts. Um, you get into the rut and, and things start calming down a bit. It's not that, you know, they're not in the rut, but typically by that point they've found their mate or mates or whatever, and, and they're kind of getting busy. And then you got post-rut for those, you know, juveniles or whoever that just couldn't figure it out the first go-round. They're starting to chase a little bit more now. But anyway, <clears throat> so we get going, and I'm pretty sure we started at the, at the beginning of the season. And I, I pretty much relied on Scott for everything. Um, at that point, Scott had a lot of connections around. Um, Scott has done different jobs. He's done construction. He's, I don't, I don't know. He's done, uh, you know, he's, he did quite a few things before he landed where he's at now, um, where he's been for, good Lord, I don't know, 20, 20 years now, somewhere around there. 
But anyway, so through his connections and through, and through the jobs that he's done and people he got to know and being the, the kind of guy that he is, he's very personable. He, he's, he talks to everybody. But by doing all of that, he's, he made a lot of connections. So he, would, he, he got all these different permissions for property. And I'm telling you, if, you're, if you know anything about the Midwest and Illinois in general, if you can get permission to hunt private land for white-tailed deer, you've got a really good thing going for you. Some of the biggest bucks in the world have come out of Illinois. In fact, I'm going to do the research again. I want to say Illinois produced a world record buck at one point out of uh, Pike County. Um, yeah, anyway, so again, Illinois has uh, some very large deer. Illinois is corn and soybeans. Deer like corn and soybeans. Um, so you give them that kind of nutrition and you give them the population numbers that they've had, especially now that they're recovering from chronic waste disease. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing. You, I mean, there's some big numbers out there. A lot of, a lot of deer, a lot of big deer. So anyway, so Scott being who he is, he gets permission to, to all these different properties. I, I honestly couldn't tell you how many he had because he broke it down. Scott, Scott knows the value of being able to use somebody else's property. So he would make a point to, to ask, you know, is it okay if I bring somebody, you know, somebody that I trust, whatever. Um, I don't know what his wording was, but or is this strictly for me? Um, and, and he would get both answers. And so he would tell me. You know, he would talk about different properties that he was hunting. I'd ask him if we were going to go there, and he'd say, no, I've got permission for myself and nobody else, and I'm not wrecking it. Can't blame him for that. But he would always find some properties that he was allowed to bring somebody, um, and, and most of the time it was either myself or his, his buddy Chris. Um, and his buddy Chris also had some property that was really nice. But we go out. It's first of the season, it's, and, and this is the other great thing. If you ever want to even think about getting into archery hunting, it's nice out. I don't know how many days I've spent where I'm just in a t-shirt could have been in shorts I just don't really wear shorts but it's just beautiful you're just sitting there enjoying it fall is just starting so the leaves are changing it's just beautiful out there fall is my favorite hol or holiday <laughs> fall is my favorite season I, I just love seeing how the whole world changes and, and it's just and also fall is my favorite season because that's when big game hunting starts so I that's what I planned my entire life around you know eight months out of the year. But yeah, so we we go to several different properties. And for one reason or another, it, it nothing works out. Um, we see deer, but we're in the wrong place. Um, so they never get, you know, closer than 200 yards. Or we see deer and wind is wrong and they bust us. And, and, and it's just, I would have to say this went on for a few weeks at that age, I, d I still had not, I'd grown a little bit more patient than I had as a child, but not much. I mean, even now, I, I still don't have a ton of patience. You know, in my mind, I, I would say we were in November, but in reality, it, we were we had to have still just been in October and maybe hunted three, four days a week. So maybe we got them for two to three weeks, maybe a grand total of, you know, 12 hunts, let's say. And, and I am starting to get a little frustrated. Because again, I, I'm a very much, I very much am a uh, immediate satisfaction kind of person. Like if if you tell me that this is what we're doing, then that's what I expect to happen. Even though I know how everything works, I still I go out every time expecting that I'm going to see animals, and then I'm going to then I'm going to harvest one. I don't think that's a bad attitude to have. I think that's a, a really positive attitude. Like I don't ever go out thinking I'm wasting my time. I go out thinking 
I'm going to find one. But we wind up, again, getting skunked a few times. We wind up, I think it was like after school one day, because that was one thing I used to always do, is that I would come home from school, throw the camo on, drive the truck over to Scott's house, which is less than a mile away, and off we would go into the woods. So I think what had happened was that it was just one random day after school. Uh, I'm sure he called me, asked if I wanted to hunt. I said, yeah, sure do. And uh, he says, well, come on over. So I go over. And, you know, I'm expecting to throw stuff in the truck, and we're going to head out to one of his properties. And he said, no, we don't have a lot of time. We're going to hunt here. And there's just something about it. I don't know why, but there's always, like, doubt in my mind when these kinds of things, like, I just don't feel like I'm hunting. If you tell me to walk 50 yards from my house and that there's going to be an elk there, or you need to drive two hours out into the middle of nowhere and walk for three miles and and then more than likely there should be an elk there i'm actually going to be more inclined to go that distance because that to me is hunting if i can walk out my front yard and shoot one that's convenient and i can't 100 percent say i'd pass on it because that's meat but if you're telling me what i prefer to do my preference is to hunt to get out away and do the hunt because that's what hunting is it's getting out there on an adventure but anyway you know we're short on time I don't, I don't know if we had somewhere we had to be, or I don't know. You know, I can't remember details of crap. But I just know that he said we we didn't have time to go for to anywhere. He just wanted to hunt in the in the area. And the nice thing is, is that the way that the property is, is lined out, it's actually something I've never really seen before or after. But basically, it's one driveway with three houses. So you you drive up this driveway, and it kind of loops off to the left. But before it loops, there's a second driveway, and that goes up to my brother-in-law and sister's house. You loop it off to the left, that was his grandpa's house. You go all the way down to the end of the driveway, that was his mom and dad's house. Now, uh, my, my brother-in-law and my sister still live there. Um, another man uh, by the name of Mac, I've actually never spent much time with him. He moved in long after I was gone. A uh, really nice guy, though, from what I was told, lives in his grandpa's house. And then my brother actually bought... Um, Scott's dad's house so still pretty much stayed in the family but I I think grand total for everything if you put everybody's property together and I could be wrong I would say in the neighborhood of 60 to 80 acres might be more than that but it but it's in that area Um, it's a good chunk of land that's split up um, between all of them differently but I think if you put it all together it's somewhere around 60 80 acres maybe even up to 100 but somewhere in that range a good decent amount of property and at the bottom um, there's a pond and then you go over the the edge of the pond and you'll be down in uh, the pecan trees a pecan grove um, Scott's grandpa planted them umpteen years ago before I was even thought of and so there's pecans down there and um, a lot of I think they had alfalfa just a lot of good good area you know when you look at a at at an ecosystem and think that that's a good deer area that's what this would be but again not far um at all he he tells me all right i want you to go down here to his grandpa's property um i put a i hung a tree stand up there you know this is where you go and literally it is 15 yards off of the driveway it's in the woods but it's right off of the driveway but that's one thing that, that I've learned um, by working with Scott and, and experiencing things on my own and all of that is that 
deer don't really live our lifestyle. They don't really care about what we're trying to do. If their habitat supports it and this is what they need, then they'll be there, whether that's 500 yards off the road or in a ditch right next to the road. They don't care. They're living a whole different life than what you and I are. But anyway, so we sit, or I sit actually. He goes to another stand across the field, which he could apparently see me. I didn't know where he was going, and I didn't know that he could see me. But later I'll find out that he could. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm kind of bored. As I say a lot, I'm bored, and I'm kind of drifting off of my thoughts and wondering why I'm sitting in this stand, also wondering if this stand is going to completely collapse because it was not, again, we don't do the whole go to the store and buy a stand and and all of that and, and put it up with its little safety features and wear your harness. But I will tell you this, um, another public service announcement. If you go up in a friggin' tree, uh, tree stand, wear a harness. I don't care if you built it. I don't care what um, – something's going to happen. It's going to collapse. If you're using a climber, I've had it happen, your feet are going to collapse, and you're going to be sitting there with your feet dangling wondering what you're supposed to do with yourself. Regardless, always wear a harness. It has proven to save lives, and it's been proven that people have died because they didn't wear one. End of an announcement. Anyway, so I'm sitting in the stand without a harness, and Scott built it I don't know how many years ago. It was no longer the color of wood. It was the color of moss. It was just green. Didn't think it was really rotten. But again, the thoughts going through your head, am I going to die today? What do I do with my bow when this deer stand collapses? The last thing I want is a broadhead going through my forehead. Um, So, you know mind wanders in that area and then you wonder about you know whatever girl you're chasing at school and you know how cool you're going to look if you can send her a picture of this deer with blood all over it because that's what women want whatever so I'm just sitting there kind of daydreaming going off on my own and I hear the the crunching of leaves and I've learned, it's really hard for me to explain, but I have, I've kind of learned the difference between squirrel and deer on leaves. Because that's what you're going to hear all day. If you ever go out in the woods and just sit and listen, give it a couple hours, you're just going to start hearing squirrels. And you'll hear them hit the leaves, and instantly your heart's going to start racing because you think that's a deer. And, and it still happens. But I, I've kind of learned the whole, the pattern of the sound to know the difference between deer and squirrel. Now the problem with this one is that this was two deer walking in at the same time, which changed that pattern, which made me think it's just another stupid squirrel, whatever, until I look up and right there, 25 yards from me, is a doe and a, I don't know, it was a big fawn. It was not spotted. It was not really small. I mean, I, I, it's borderline me calling it a doe is where it was, um, you know, small doe is what I would actually call it. But they're walking in, and now, as I had described before, the buck fever sets in, and my heart's racing. I am shaking. I grab, my bow is like on my lap. I'm kind of just holding it, but like I grab the bow and start. And and this is the biggest, this is how I knew, um, or no now, maybe at the time it it was kind of subconscious, but now looking back, this is how I know that one, the practice that I had done and the amount of hunting that I had done had changed kind of my way of doing things. I grabbed the bow and then realized I got to slow down. I need to make my moves very slow, very methodical, 
and only move when I know that they're not really paying attention. If their head goes down to feed or whatever, I'm gonna, I'll make a move. Now I do what I did before, I stand up. However, I do that because if I can stand up with my bow, I'm going to stand up with my bow. I'm most solid when I can do that. So that's not out of, you know, immaturity, lack of experience. It's because I want to. When I go to shoot my bow, I want to be standing when I do it. So if I have the opportunity to do so, I will. I will take a seated shot if I have to. But if, I, if the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to be standing when I do it. So that's what I do. I, I slowly get myself up. I slowly get my bow up. I had a wrist release. Yeah, because I actually I really like wrist releases. So I, I open up the jaws and I clip it onto my D-ring. And then I just stand there. And, and, and the, these does are, are aware that something that isn't really normal is happening. But they don't know what. They haven't busted me. My wind is good. I haven't made any crazy movements. I haven't made any really noise at all. So they they just they kind of have that sense that something isn't 100% right, but they haven't figured out what it is, and it hasn't become such an issue to them that they need to bust out of there. So they're kind of, you know, feeding a little bit, poking the head up, feeding a little bit, poking the head up. Watching these videos, kind of knowing how to do this a little bit more, I wait for them to kind of, I mean, you're talking a, a, a tree branch can be the opening that you need to draw your bow. You just need a split second of just a little bit of blindness to draw that bow back. And, and this is where practice two really comes into play. If you are skying your bow to draw it back, one, you haven't practiced enough, and two, you're probably drawing too much weight. You need to draw the most amount of weight that you possibly can to do two things. One, to draw it straight back without any kind of real movement. Just you're holding that riser straight out in front of you and you are pulling that string straight back. If you can't do that, you need to do one of two things. You need to practice more and build that strength up so you can or you need to drop your weight. Nothing wrong with dropping your weight. I promise you that shooting a deer at 50 pounds and killing it is going to be a lot more satisfactory than falling out of your tree stand trying to draw 70 pounds back and busting everything out in the tri-county area. Like, 50 pounds will kill a deer. Promise you it will. A good shot, shot placement is everything. You put a good shot down, it's going to die. So I wait for that one split second. I think they walked, they kind of just walked right by this little sapling almost. But it was just enough where I got my bow back. And this is where the second part of the weight that you're drawing. Now, all bows have let off at this point, um, but still it's a percentage of your draw weight. So if you're drawing back and you have 70% let off on a 70-pound bow, that's still going to be more weight than you're holding than 70-pound let off on a 50-pound bow. But you need to get to the point where you can hold that string and hold it for days because when you draw back, I promise you, you're, it's all of a sudden something's going to happen. A tree's going to sprout out from the ground you know, a, a human being is going to walk right next to a deer. I don't know. Something really stupid is just going to happen, and that shot you had is no longer there. And you've got two choices. Do I let down or do I just hold this thing until the shot opens up? And the answer needs to be I'm going to hold this thing until the shot opens up because if you try to make the movement of drawing down a bow and then drawing back a bow again, more than likely you're going to get busted. So you just need to hold it. And that's one thing I practice a lot. I hold it and I hold it and I hold it. I'll shoot, you know, whatever session I'm shooting, I'll shoot several, you know, arrows, however many arrows I'm going to shoot. 
And then maybe my last few arrows of the day, while I'm tired and I've shot a bunch of arrows already, you know, maybe I'll shoot five arrows where I hold it to failure. When I know that my arm's about to just be done, I'll go ahead and release that arrow. I'm not shooting for accuracy. I don't care. I'm building that strength. I mean, obviously, I want to hit my target because I don't want to lose arrows, but, like, I'm not trying to pinpoint these things. I'm not trying to Robin Hood. I'm just trying to build that strength up. So anyway, so that's what happens. I get the bow drawn, and uh, they're just not in the right position. I think they wind up side by side, and I don't want to do a shot side by side because I don't have the tags to harvest two deer. So I wait. <clears throat> Finally, they break apart, and I'm estimating their distance. And this is another thing that... that was really big with Scott that he taught me. We didn't have rangefinders. Um, I think at one point Scott bought a rangefinder, and I, I swear to you, that thing is like the size of a pair of binoculars now. And it might have been good out to, I don't know, 112 feet. Um, it, it was not the most high-quality thing in the world, not, you know, due to, to him buying something junky. It's just this was kind of the birth of rangefinders, and they just weren't great. Uh, you know, for the most part, especially, you know, again, Midwest hunting, uh, we, we relied on, on just learning what distance is. You need to know where 20 yards is. You need to know where 30 yards is. And he would quiz me on it all the time. It was just kind of one of the fun games we play. Hey, you know, how far is that tree out? You know, how far away is that car? You know, just different little things like that so you could understand and recognize different distances. So I, uh, you know, I've got, I've got the bow drawn back. Now, I do something that is considered wrong in the bow hunting community, in the archery community in general. I shoot with my non-dominant eye. I, uh, for the longest time, um, the way that my body has worked is that, the way I kind of explain it is that I, anything that requires any kind of finesse is going to be done with my left hand. Anything that requires any kind of strength is done with my right, and I'm left eye dominant. So when I shoot a rifle, when I shoot any kind of gun, I'm shooting it left-handed. But when I shoot a bow... Because I, I think I just assumed because it required strength um, to draw back that that's what I needed to do. Not to mention I didn't have a lot of options. I had one bow offered to me, and it was a right-handed bow, so I made it work. And I still shoot that way to this day. I have had plenty of opportunities to switch left-handed, but I am very, 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 very comfortable with the way that I shoot right-handed. I don't feel like I'm handicapped at all. I don't feel like... I, you know, that there's any problem with it, even though I guarantee you I'll get arguments from people that say I could still shoot better lefty. I just don't want to. This is how I shoot, and this is how I'm going to continue to shoot. So anyway, um, so I'm drawn back. I'm waiting for these two deer to separate. I got both eyes open at this point just so I can kind of monitor everything going on around me, see if maybe a buck's chasing or, or something stupid that I'm missing. And... The opportunity, you know, presents itself. So I kind of observe my surroundings. Where are they at? Okay, they're right by this tree that I estimated earlier was 20 yards, but they're just in front of it. I'm going to call it 18 yards. I close my left eye so I can focus my right eye down the peep through the sight and onto that deer. And I double check myself again. I'm thinking in my head, don't punch the trigger, you know. Make sure the range is right. Make sure the the air, um, everything is set on the bow correctly. Am I holding everything right? You know, I'm I'm doing all these real quick checks to make sure that everything is the way that it needs to be. And then she stops, and she pokes her head up, 
and I know that this is the moment. You know, the bigger doe, she's out in front, so there's no chance of my arrow doing any kind of damage to her. This doe has stopped, and they're 10 yards from going um, down this game trail deeper into the woods and, and out of sight. So this is the opportunity. So I focus. I I put my my sight dead on at 20 yards. I put my 20-yard pin right where, right behind that shoulder, just above, you know, the chest where I just know the heart is. But I also know this arrow is going to go a little bit high because it's, she's a little bit closer. But I want it to go a little bit high because I'm also at an angle, and so I want it to, to penetrate just a little bit higher. And I just start putting a little bit of pressure onto that trigger, a little bit more pressure, a little bit more pressure, a little bit more pressure, and there goes the arrow. And I see the arrow, and I see the arrow enter her. And then I see her do what I had talked about before with that that kind of dig into the ground. She kind of nosedived into the ground, was just kicking her legs, flailing, trying to get out of there as quick as she could. And I knew it. I knew I had just, I, I had just slammed her. I mean, she was not going far. I could see the blood pouring out as um, she was running off. So I knew she's, she's dead. I, you know, I have just harvested my first deer. And then I go back to the, uh, to what I've been taught is that you don't, you don't one start jumping around, celebrating, acting dumb, jumping out of your tree stand, anything like that. Like take a seat, get the adrenaline dump out of the way. And then, you know, just take a little time, let her die. The last thing you want to do is to take what you thought was a good kill, but really she's not dead yet, and you push her. And then you, you know, wind up on a two-mile hike trying to find this animal. When if you'd left them alone, they would have been dead 20 yards from your stand. So I just, I sit down. I, you know, I do pump my fist. I'm, I'm beyond excited. This was, I know, like, I don't even have to go down there. I know that this animal's dead. So I just made my first bow kill, and, and I will tell you the pride in my first bow kill was more than I could have ever done with a gun. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the challenge of archery hunting, but more than that was the the time and effort. I practiced and I earned that deer. That first deer I ever killed, I didn't earn it. I mean, it was a good thing that happened. It, it sparked my um, my interest in the hunting world and and my desire to do it, but I didn't earn anything on that. I didn't know that gun. I, I didn't really know how to shoot it all that well. I was just a kid trying to get out there the first time, and I got really lucky. But this deer with the bow, I earned that. I earned her. I, I did everything that I needed to do to, to put a good shot on her, and I did. So, again, I'm sitting there. You know, I don't know, five, ten minutes goes by. I'm, I'm calmed down, and I'm ready to go tell Scott so that we can start tracking this girl. I just happen to look over and leaning up against a tree, 10 yards from my stand there, Scott, with the biggest smile on his face. So I climbed down, and and then he proceeds to tell me where he was sitting and that he saw the entire thing. He saw when I stood up, so he knew something was going on, so he watched, and, and he actually got to see me harvest that deer. And, and that, was, that was really awesome because he's the one that got me into that and the fact that he got to witness his hard work um, because I, there were times when I did not want to do anything. I, I didn't want to practice. I didn't want to do all that. And he, he drug me out, and he, he stuck with me even when I was, you know, a, a stupid kid. Um, so I, I hope that that gave him some satisfaction of, you know, wow, you know, it, it all did work out really well. Um, so I climbed down, find my arrow, sticking right into the ground, and soaked in blood. 
and right where that arrow is, just a pool of blood just all over the ground. So, I, I mean, we both know this animal's dead. And we walk, you know, he, he doesn't do anything for me. Uh, this is one thing that Scott has always done is he doesn't just do the work for me. So he makes me break it down. You know, I get down from the stand. Okay, where's your arrow? Right here. Okay. Where did she run? She ran that way. Okay, start trailing her. I don't want you looking for her. I want you looking for her blood. And I will tell you that's a really good suggestion when you start trailing something. If you start looking for the body, you're going to miss the blood, and you're going to wind up off the trail. So you just need to find blood. If you find blood, keep walking until you find the next you know, spot of blood or whatever until you f- that blood leads you to that animal. But anyway, so that's what he does. Um, but it doesn't take long. She went 10 yards, maybe. Maybe 20 at the absolute most. But she's right there. I mean, I, I trail it, and then I just, you know, I'm 10 yards from her. I look, and there she's piled up. And, and I'm just beyond ecstatic. She's not the biggest deer in the world. She's not a buck. She's not a world record. She's nobody outside of me and Scott would ever care about this deer at all. But I promise you that to this day, that's one of my proudest moments as far as what animals I've harvested. And I, I hope that, you know, Scott's pretty proud of that whole situation as well. But yeah, then we get her gutted, get her loaded in the back of the truck, and uh, I get a, you know, picture of of me with my deer and, and my first bow kill. Um, to this day, nobody's ever, no girls have really decided to date me strictly based on that picture. But you know, my wife now she, she thinks I'm pretty cool. But anyway, so that right there, you know, is the positive side of all of this. And I will tell you this. This whole breakdown is going to be a little bit different because I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, toot my own horn here, but I'm going to be honest, not a lot went wrong. But that's what we're going to break down in this next one is why did a lot not go wrong? So stick around and we'll go ahead and get to the breakdown of this. So typically this is, again, where we have the conversation of what went wrong. And, I mean, maybe it's the nostalgia. Maybe it's, you know, me just being overconfident. And, and I know that we could possibly find things to do differently. But every once in a while, things just go right. And that's what we're going to talk about is why, well, what went right and why did it go right. Um, so what went right is that I harvested a doe. With one shot, my first shot I ever took at an animal with a bow, and it was a very almost you could almost say perfect. I mean, very very good at the at the bare minimum. Really good shot. She did not suffer. I mean, she was she was dead before she knew that she was dead. I can tell you that she went quick. So overall, I mean, you can't really you can't really say that anything went wrong. But why did things go right? And I will go back to what we talked about earlier. Practice. I practiced for months. It was my first year ever picking up a bow, but I made up for that time by just shooting it almost every day for what had to have been seven months, six, seven months maybe. I mean, somewhere in that area. It was early spring when we started, and I'm telling you, I practiced all the time, sometimes against my will. But Scott knew that that's what was going to prepare me to, to be a good hunter. I can't preach that enough. You've got to practice. You as a person need to be prepared for hunting more than anything else. Gear is so cool. 
man, I love gear. I, I have been buying some gear here and there for this backpacking hunt that I have coming up this fall. And, man, it's fun. I've been weighing it all out. You know, I buy this, buy that. I've gotten into marina wool, so, you know, I, I've got all that gear now. I, I got a new nice pair of boots, a new down sleeping bag. You know, all this really cool gear that is absolutely worthless if I, as a person, am not prepared. Gear is so fun. It's fun to shop. I mean, I enjoy it. Maybe not everybody does, but I'll be honest. If I'm on, a, like, Bass Pro or, you know, First Light or, you know, any of these websites with all this different hunting gear, I get excited. It's fun to see what, you know, all the new cool stuff is. That's a lot of fun. It's not always the most fun thing in the world to have to go shoot. I enjoy shooting. Don't get me wrong. I love shooting. That's one of my passions. But it's not always the most fun thing. Sometimes you're like, man, I'd rather just kind of do with something else. Preparing physically is another one. You know, not so much in, you know, when I was deer hunting out of stands, I didn't need to be able to walk for days. But now I'll tell you, you need to be able to walk and do it up and down hills and do it a lot and do it with weight. And if you can't, all that awesome gear you have doesn't matter at all. If you bought the greatest gear in the world and you can't get more than a half a mile off the trail, your chances of success are going down by the minute. But we're going to go over that. that um, that'll be a new serious thing that I do here shortly. Anyway, preparation. I shot my bow to where I knew that bow. I, like I said earlier, I knew how that bow felt when I was holding it right. I knew how that bow felt when I had done something wrong, if I was canting my wrist, if I had my grip wrong, if I didn't have it anchored correctly. I just knew. I, I didn't have to actually see the bow to know when I was in correct position. I need to see to put my pin on the target. I don't need to see to make a, a good shot with that bow because I could feel it. And that only comes from practice. You've got to put in the time, and there's nothing. There's no substitute for it. If you can figure out, a, a, you know, an expedited way to train, great. You know, do it. But it still needs to be quality training that will improve your purpose, that will improve your chances of of harvesting or completing whatever task you're trying to do. You've got to just practice. It's got to be a part of you. And that's the biggest difference between when I was a kid and when I when I took my first year with a bow is that I put in that effort. I shot that bow so many times. I shot it from an elevation in a deer stand. I shot it from my knees. I, I practiced sitting on my butt and how I could get onto my knees without making a ton of movement. Like that was... I was honing my craft, not even just as an archery hunter, but as a hunter in general. I was doing everything that I could to become a better hunter. And that's what you have to do, and that's how you find success. And the only way to do that is through failure, in my opinion. We failed many times to get onto deer through the first few weeks of that season. And we learned every time. You know, you learn that the wind is probably the most important thing. Scent blockers, scent wafers you know, cover up scent, whatever it is, those are all great things to do. But if you if you can play the wind, you've got you're ahead of the game. Go ahead and, and set that, you know, Doe and Estrus P out there or, or run a drag line. We used to do that too. It was a lot of fun to, to run a, a line of, of Doe and Estrus P behind you while you walk and then watch those deer actually follow that line. But even still, if you don't play the wind right, none of that matters. You need to know how to play the wind. You need to know how to move without them being spooked. And those are all skills that I had been working on this entire time. 
you know, and, and also on top of that was learning to not rush. If you remember from the last episode, first thing I did with both those deer that I shot at, I stood straight up, got my gun up. Like, and I'm telling you, I can't stress it enough. I was bumbling my way through there. I was just like grabbing stuff, you know, it, it was not pretty at all. But when it came to that archery hunt, I knew, I knew that I needed to stand up slowly. I know I needed to move my bow slowly. I need to be quiet. I need to make moves only when I knew that the deer could handle me making that move. Whether they, you know, picked up something in the peripheral or whatever that told them that something was off, but doing it to the point where they just, it does, it's not enough to, to bust them, for them to bust me. So again, like, what I learned was in a positive way. I have failed a lot, and you're going to hear a lot of stories of just absolute failure where I came home with zero meat. I have more stories of those than I do of coming home with me. But from this story, my biggest takeaway is what I did correctly. I practiced my butt off, and I learned from past experiences. I learned that you can't just fumble through everything and deer are going to hang out with you. It ain't going to happen. You only get one shot. Like I said, I think this one was actually a really positive hunt, but, uh, you know, you you be the one to decide. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up with what have we learned. Now, I think I've covered it, but we'll just, you know, we'll we'll beat this dead horse because it is probably the most important thing, and that is preparation and practice. Make sure you, as a hunter, are ready for what you do. Make sure that you, as a hunter, are prepared with whatever equipment you decide you're going to go with. It's It really comes down to you. Everything else in the world is there to help we have new technology out. We have rifles that are pretty close to shooting themselves at this point. I mean, honestly, Burris has a scope that you input the information, like wind, speed, direction, and range, and it will put a dot in the scope as to where you should put, you know, your crosshair. It, it's psychotic. It's cool. I, I have no problem with it. But technology is coming a long way, and it's doing a lot of things to help us. I mean, bows nowadays don't even look anything close to what, you know, the first compound bows looked like, and they're 100 times more reliable. But it doesn't change the fact that you, as the hunter, need to be prepared with that equipment. If you have a $1,200 bow, then you better do the practice required for a $1,200 bow. And let me tell you, it's a lot. I practice an entire spring and summer with a bow that right now would cost 150 bucks. So... If you're going to invest that kind of money, you need to invest the time. And I promise you, your investment of time is much more valuable than the money you put into it. Again, as I said before, I've taken my nice fancy new bear bow back to, to Illinois and shot up against Scott, who was shooting a bow from the early 2000s, I would assume. And he outshot me because, one, Scott is has more experience, um, but also he practices. He, he puts the time in so that he knows what his his equipment is going to do when the time comes for him to use it. And that's what you've got to do. you just got to put the time in. If you can't find the time, then you're going to wind up paying in the end. And if you sacrifice one for the other, you're going to wind up paying in the end. If you spend your entire off-season shooting your new fancy gun and zero time getting any exercise, you're going to have a really fancy gun a quarter mile off the trail. 
you got to find the balance. As, as a guy from work says, you just got to find that balance. And it's actually true. I mean, he says it to every scenario that you could possibly come up with in this planet. But in this scenario, at least, it actually is, is a true statement. You got to balance out getting your gear ready, getting your body ready, getting your weapon ready. Like you've got to, and, and it comes down to scheduling. I, right now, my hunting partner and I are getting ready for a hunt this fall, and we are scheduling our time out. We are scheduling when we're going to go hike this particular mountain, when we're going to go, you know, spend a night um, in the mountains with our gear to make sure our gear is all set. When we're going to go up to uh, a place called Pawnee, which has an op- you know a bunch of opening shooting areas to shoot our muzzleloaders and get them ready. Um, and we've been doing this. I mean, we've been shooting since uh, I don't know early spring late wait late winter something like that but you've got to put that time in or you're going to regret it because i have a lot of stories coming up that are going to show you the grits i have from not being prepared anyway i hope you guys enjoyed this story i hope you guys are enjoying this podcast even if you don't i don't really care i can't see anybody listening to this so really i'm only talking to myself which shows you how narcissistic that i am that i love listening to my own voice But even still, I love it so much that I'm going to keep listening to my voice until somebody shuts me down. Anyway, again, I hope you have a good week. I will be stuck here because I am currently quarantined. Yay. Anyway, I am the Amateur Hunter, and I will see you all next week. Or you'll hear me next week.